0: Chapter 2 of The Red Hell of Jupiter by Paul Ernst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Red Hell of Jupiter. Chapter 2 The Pipe Like Men. Brand began to slacken speed on the morning of the thirteenth day. Morning, of course, being a technical term. There are no horizons in space for the sun to rise over. Jupiter was still an immense distance off but it took a great while to slow the momentum of the spaceship, which, in the frictionless emptiness of space, had been travelling faster and faster for nearly three hundred hours. Behind them was the distant ball of sun, so far off that it looked no larger than a red-hot penny. Before them was the gigantic disk of Jupiter, given a white tinge by the perpetual fog-blankets, its outline softened by its thick layer of atmosphere and cloud-banks. Two of its nine satellites were in sight at the moment, with a third edging over the western rim. "'Makes you think you're drunk and seeing triple, doesn't it?' commented Dex, who was staring out the thick glass panel beside Brand. Nine moons! Almost enough for one planet!' Brand nodded abstractly and concentrated on the control board. Rapidly the ship rocketed down toward the surface. The disk became a whirling, gigantic plate, and then an endless plane, with cloud formations beginning to take on definite outline. About to enter Jupiter's atmosphere. Brand spoke into the radio transmitter. Over the invisible thread of radio connection between the spaceship and Earth, four hundred million miles behind, flashed the message. "'All right, for God's sake, be careful,' came the answer minutes later. Say something at least every half-hour to let us know communication is unbroken. We will sound at ten-second intervals." The sounding began. Peep! A shrill little piping noise like the fiddle of a cricket. Ten seconds later it came again. Peep! Thereafter, intermittently, it keened through the control room, a homely, comforting sound to let them know that there was a distant thread between them and Earth. Lower the shell rocketed. The endless plane slowly ceased its rushing underneath them as they entered the planet's atmosphere, and began to be pulled around with it in its revolution. Far to the west a faint red glow illumined the sky. The two men looked at each other, grimly, soberly. We're here, said Dex, flexing the muscles of his powerful arms. We are, said Brandt, patting the gun in his holster. The rapid dusk of the giant planet began to close in on them. The thin sunlight darkened, and with its lowering, the red spot of Jupiter glared more luridly ahead of them. Silently, the two men gazed at it and wondered what it held. They shot the spaceship toward it and halted a few hundred miles away. Watery white light from the satellites, that jitter around the sky like a bunch of damned water bugs, as Dex put it was now the sole illumination. They hung motionless in their space-shell, to wait through the five-hour jovian night for the succeeding five hours of daylight, to illumine a slow cruise over the red area that in less than a year had swallowed up three of Earth's spaceships. And ever as they waited, dozing a little, speculating as to the nature of the danger they faced, The peep-peep of the radio shrilled in their ears to tell them that there was still a connection, though a very tenuous one, with their mother planet. "'Red Spot ten miles away,' said Brand in the transmitter. "'We're approaching it slowly.' The tiny sun had leaped up over Jupiter's horizon, and with its appearance they had sent the ship planing toward their mysterious destination. Beneath them the fog-banks were thinning and ahead of them were no clouds. For some reason there was a clarity unusual to Jupiter's atmosphere in the air above the red section. Red spot one mile ahead, altitude forty thousand feet," reported Brand. He and Dex peered intently through the port glass panel. Ahead and far below, their eyes caught an odd metallic sheen. It was as though the ground there were carpeted with polished steel that reflected red firelight. Tense, filled with an excitement that set their pulses pounding wildly, they angled slowly down, nearer to the edge of the vast crimson area, closer to the ground. The radio keened its monotonous signal. Brand crawled to the transmitter, laboriously, for his body tipped the scales here at nearly four hundred pounds. We can see the metallic glitter that journeyman spoke of," he said. No sign of life of any kind, though. The red glow seems to flicker a little. Closer the ship floated. Closer. To right and left of them, for vast distances, stretched the red area. Ahead of them, for hundreds of miles, they knew it extended. "'We're right on it now,' called Brand. "'Right on it. We're going over the edge. We're—' Next instant he was sprawling on the floor, with Dex rolling helplessly on top of him, while the spaceship bounced up twenty thousand feet as though propelled by a giant sling. The peep-peep of the radio signal stopped. The spaceship rolled helplessly for a moment, then resumed an even keel. Brand and Dex gazed at each other. "'What the hell?' said Dex. He started to get to his feet put all his strength into the task of moving his Jupiter-weighted body, and crashed against the top of the control room. "'Say,' he sputtered, rubbing his head, "'say, what is this?' Brand, profiting by his mistake, rose more cautiously, shut off the atomic motor and approached a glass panel again. "'God knows what it is,' he said with a shrug. Somehow, with our passing into the red area, the pull of gravity has been reduced by about ten, that's all." Oh, so that's all, is it? Well, what's happened to old Jupe's gravity?" Again Brand shrugged. "'I haven't any idea. Your guess is as good as mine.' He peered down through the panel and stiffened in surprise. "'Decks!' he cried. "'We're moving! And the motor is shut off!' We're drawing down closer to the ground, too," announced Dex, pointing to their altimeter. "'Our altitude has been reduced five thousand feet in the last two minutes!' Quickly, Brand turned on the motor in reverse. The spaceship, as the rushing, red-dish ground beneath indicated, continued to glide forward as though pulled by an invisible rope. He turned on full power. The ship's progress was checked a little—a very little and the metallic-red surface under them grew nearer as they steadily lost altitude. "'Something seemed to have got us by the nose,' said Dex. "'We're on our way to the center of the red spot, I guess, to find whatever it was that journeyman found, and the radio communication has been broken somehow.' Wordlessly they stared out the panel, while the shell, quivering with the strain of the atomic motor's fight against whatever unseen force it was that relentlessly drew them forward, bore them swiftly toward the heart of that vast, crimson area. "'Look!' cried Brand. For over an hour the ship had been propelled swiftly, irresistibly toward the centre of the red spot. It had been up about forty thousand feet. Now with a jerk that sent both men reeling, it had been drawn down to within fifteen thousand feet of the surface, and the sight that was now becoming more and more visible was incredible. Beneath was a vast orderly checkerboard. Every alternate square was covered by what seemed a jointless metal plate. The open squares, plainly land under cultivation, were surrounded by gleaming fences that hooked each metal square with every other one of its kind, as batteries are wired in series. Over these open squares progressed tiny, two-legged figures, for the most part following gigantic shapeless animals, like figures out of a dream. Ahead suddenly appeared the spires and towers of an enormous city. Metropolis and cultivated land. It was as unbelievable, on that raw new planet, as such a sight would have been could a traveller in time have observed it in the midst of a dim Pleistocene panorama of young earth it was instantly apparent that the city was their destination. Rapidly the little ship was rushed toward it, and, realizing at last the futility of its laboring, Brand cut off the atomic motor and let the shell drift. Over a group of squat square buildings their ship passed, decreasing speed and drifting lower with every moment. The lofty structures that were the nucleus of the strange city loomed closer now they were soaring slowly down a wide thoroughfare, and now at last they hovered above a great open square that was thronged with figures. Lower they dropped, lower, and then they settled with a slight jar on a surface made of reddish metal, and the figures rushed to surround them. Looking out the glass panel at these figures, both Brand and Dex exclaimed aloud and covered their eyes for a moment to shut out the hideous sight of them. Now they examined them closely. Manlike they were, and yet like no human being conceivable to an earth mind. They were tremendously tall, twelve feet at least, but as thin as so many animated poles. Their two legs were scarce four inches through, taperless, boneless, like lengths of pipe. And like two flexible pipes they were joined to a slightly larger pipe of a torso that could not have been more than a foot in diameter. There were four arms, a pair on each side of the cylindrical body, that weaved feebly about like lengths of rubber hose. Set directly on the pipe-like body, as a pumpkin might be balanced on a pole, was a perfectly round cranium in which were glassy, staring eyes, with dull pupils like those of a sick dog. The nose was but a tab of flesh. The mouth was a minute circular thing, soft and flabby looking, which opened and shut regularly with the creatures breathing. It resembled the snout like mouth of a fish, of the sucker variety, and fish like too was the smooth and slimy skin that covered the beanpole body. Hundreds of the repulsive things there were, and all of them shoved and crowded, as a disorderly mob on earth might do, to get close to the Earthmen's ship. Their big, dull eyes peered in through the glass panels, and their hands, mere round blobs of gristle in the palms of which were set single sucker-disks, pattered against the metal hull of the shell. God! said Brand with a shudder. Fancy these things feeling over your body! They're hostile, whatever they are, said Dex. Look out! That one's pointing something at you! One of the slender, tottering creatures had raised an arm and leveled at Brand something that looked rather like an elongated, old-fashioned flashlight. Brand involuntarily ducked. The clear glass panel between them and the mob outside gave him a queasy feeling of being exposed to whatever missile might lurk in the thing's tube. "'What do we do now?' demanded Dex, with a shaky laugh. "'You're chief of this expedition. I'm waiting for orders.' "'We wait right here.' replied Brand. We're safe in the shell till we're starved out. At least they can't get in to attack us." But it developed that, while the slimy-looking things might not be able to get in, they had ways of reaching the Earthmen just the same. The creature with the gun-like tube extended it somewhat further toward Brand. Brand felt a sharp, unpleasant tingle shoot through his body, as though he had received an electric shock. He winced and cried out at the sudden pain of it. "'What's the matter?' Dex began. But hardly had the words left his mouth when he too felt the shock. A couple of good, hearty earth oaths exploded from his lips. The repulsive creature outside made an authoritative gesture. He seemed to be beckoning to them, his huge dull eyes glaring threateningly at the same moment. Our beanpole friend is suggesting that we get out of the shell and stay a while," said Dex with grim humour. "'They seem anxious to entertain us—ouch!' As the two men made no move to obey the beckoning gesture, the creature had raised the tube again, and again the sharp, unpleasant shock shot through them. "'What the devil are we going to do?' exclaimed Brand. "'If we go out in that mob of nightmare things, it's going to be messy as long as we stay in the shell, we have some measure of protection." "'Not much protection when they can sting us through metal and glass at will,' growled Dex. "'Do you suppose they can turn the juice on harder? Or is that bee-sting their best effort?' As though in direct answer to his words, the blob-like face of the being who seemed in authority convulsed with anger and he raised the tube again. This time the shock that came from it was sufficient to throw the two men to the floor. "'Well, we can't stay in the ship, that's certain,' said Brand. "'I guess there's only one thing to do.' Dex nodded. "'Climb out of here and take as many of these skinny horrors with us into hell as we can,' he agreed. Once more the shock stung them, as a reminder not to keep their captors waiting. With their shoulders bunched for abrupt action, and their guns in hand, the two men walked to the trap-door of the ship. They threw the heavy bolts, drew a deep breath, and flung open the door to charge unexpectedly toward the thickest mass of creatures that surrounded the ship. In a measure their charge was successful. Its very suddenness caught some of the tall monstrosities off guard. Half a dozen of them stopped the fragile glass bullets to writhe in horrible death on the red metal paving of the square. But that didn't last long. In less than a minute, thin, clammy arms were winding around the Earthmen's wrists and their guns were wrenched from them, and then started a hand to hand encounter that was all the more hideous for being so unlike any fighting that might have occurred on Earth. With a furious growl, Dex charged the nearest creature, whose huge, round head swayed on its stalk of a body fully six feet above his own head. He gathered the long, thin legs in a football grip. Had sent the thing crashing full length on its back. The great head thumped resoundingly against the metal paving, and the creature lay motionless. For an instant Dex could only stare at the thing. It had been so easy, like overcoming a child. But even as that thought crossed his mind, two of the tall thin figures closed in behind him. Four pairs of arms wound around him, feebly but tenaciously, like wet seaweed. They began to constrict and wind tighter around him. He tore at them, dislodged all but two. His sturdy earth-leg went back to sweep the stalk-like legs of his attackers from under them. One of the things went down, to twist weakly in a laborious attempt to rise again. But the other, by sheer force of height and reach, began to bear decks down. Savagely, he laced out with his fists, battering the pulpy face that was pressing down close to his. The big eyes blinked shut, but the four hose like arms did not relax their clasp. Dex's hands sought fiercely for the thing's throat, but it had no throat. The head, set directly on the thin shoulders, defied all throttling attempts. Then, just as Dex was feeling that the end had come, he felt the creature wrench from him and saw it slide in a tangle of arms and legs over the smooth metal pavement. He got shakily to his feet to see Brand standing over him and flailing out with his fists at an ever-tightening circle of towering figures. Thanks, panted Dex. And he began again, tripping the twelve-foot things in order to get them down within reach, battering at the great pulpy heads, fighting blindly in that expressed craving to take as many of the creatures into hell with him as he could manage. Beside him fought Brand, steadily, coolly, grim of jaw and unblinking of eye. Already the struggle had gone on far longer than they had dreamed it might. For some reason the grotesque creatures delayed killing them. That they could do so any time they pleased was certain. If the monsters could reach them with their shock-tubes through the double-insulated hull of the spaceship, they could certainly kill them out in the open. Yet they made no move to do so. The deadly tubes were not used. The screeching gargoyles, instead, devoted all their efforts to merely hurling their attenuated bodies on the two men, as though they wished to capture them alive. Finally, however, the nature of the battle changed. The tallest of the attackers opened his tiny mouth and piped a signal. The ring of weaving tall bodies surrounding the two opened and became a U. The creatures in the curve of the U raised their shock-tubes, and, with none of their own kind behind the victims who share in its discharge, released whatever power it was that lurked in them. The shock was terrific. Without the glass and metal of the ship to protect them, out in the open and defenceless, Brand and Dex got some indication of its real power. Writhing and twitching, feeling as though pierced by millions of red-hot needles, they went down. A swarm of pipe-like bodies smothered them, and the fight was over. End of chapter 2